All right, welcome back to the uh, Hale Institute podcast. Uh, we've had some great guests on the show recently. Um, Adam Carrington was recent, uh, Hadley Arcus, and now we have uh, Mark David Hall, who is um, Dr. Hall. You said you are you are now at Regent University, or will be this coming fall. Is that correct? Yeah, no, I started this fall at the Robertson School of Government. They're starting okay. a new PhD program, and they brought me on board to help get that launched. That's right. I almost said George Fox again, and I keep that's what I have stuck in my mind. Um, and you've, I mean, you've written a number of of books that that we could talk about relevant to uh, you know all the all the topics we're interested in. But the one I wanted to focus on um, today, and we can if we get off on other tangents that have to do with your other books, uh, feel free to bring them up. But this is. One in particular that um, you, you, it's from 2019 also. 2019 was a very, uh, was a fun year for you. You had your, did America uh, have a Christian founding and this one with Daniel Dreisbach, which uh, you both edited called Great Christian Jurists in American History. And it's part of that. Um, it's an amazing series from Cambridge uh, Studies in Law and Christianity that I think, um, did, did John Witte start that series or has he kind of shepherded that? There's there's a lot of people that have had great people that have written in that series. Yeah, I think it's I think he's a series editor. OK, OK. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, there, there's just <clears throat> there's a huge list of books in this this series. And, and this one, like I said, 2019, um, also a great just even within this volume roster of of authors. Some people listeners to the show will know Glenn Moots. Um, Donald Drakeman, um, James Stoner, you know, the, the, the list goes on. There's, um, I think 17, 18 chapters, something like that, uh, not including the introduction. Um, of course, John Woody himself. So this is a, a great resource. And the, uh, the, just to give people a basic structure of the, of the book, each, each chapter, different authors, um, you know, working within their area of expertise or looking at, um, in the American context, kind of beginning 17th century and running up through at, at the time through the present, the last chapters on Robbie George, um, looking at American Christians who have contributed in some way to uh, jurisprudence. And it's, it's, of course, fleshing out the, their unique contributions. Um, I don't want to I don't want to make this next question redundant. So I'll just turn to you now, uh, Dr. Hall. What um you know, I want to talk about the confines of the project, but, but first of all, kind of what makes for your, you and um, Dr. Dreisbach's purposes, what makes a Christian jurist in the way that you selected the particular people that were focused on in this in this project? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And first of all, I should say it wasn't just Daniel Dreisbach and myself who came up with this list. We um, basically asked about 50 law professors or or professors who teach about constitutional law um, who they thought belonged on this list. And by Christian, we simply mean someone who identifies as a Christian or who is usually thought of as a Christian. And this allows us to include someone like a Joseph Story, who's basically a Unitarian. And so perhaps not, certainly not an Orthodox Christian, but nonetheless a great jurist. And so we included him. So it's basically a matter of either self-identification or general understanding. And as well, we were looking for people who are generally perceived that their faith had something to do with their jurisprudence. So conceivably, one could be a deep, pious Christian and um, yet think faith has nothing whatsoever to do with the practice of law. And so that sort of person wouldn't, wouldn't be included in our list. Gotcha. Okay, that, that makes sense. And then the, um, um, I, be I believe you told me that there's a companion sort of to this 
volume that deals with non-American Christian jurists. Is that, uh, am I getting that right? Yeah, well, the series has uh, you know, basically a great Christian jurist of England, of France, of Spain, of Italy, of um, Wales, even. And, and so we're the American volume. So, yeah, you have all sorts of volumes out there. Um, so if you have listeners who are real interested in great Christian jurist in England, um, you can go to that volume and find a wonderful little chapter in Matthew Hale, for instance. That's right. That's right. Um, so we're sticking in the in the American context here. And I think the um, so it was sort of uh, you're saying at, at a scholarly level crowdsourced of these, at least based on a I think that's a, a decent sample size of scholars that would be interested in this material um, based on a general sort of consensus these are the people that are significant, influential over at least this this um, range, this sort of timeline, right? So beginning with uh, someone like John Cotton and ending with, um, I think you have a, there's a chapter on Mike McConnell, uh, the, the judge, um, Robbie George, of course, Antonin Scalia. Um, but these are the people that, uh, that the, if someone's a, a interested in the impact of Christianity on jurisprudence, and by Christians and jurisprudence in America, these are the people to study. That's right. And I should say as well that we um, asked our, the, the people we surveyed to limit themselves to four jurists per century. And so, you know, you mm-hmm. might be tempted to list 12 um, contemporary living Christian jurists, but they had to lo- limit themselves. I should say as well by jurist, I think our mind immediately goes straight to judge, but we mean someone who's been active in the law in a variety of respects. So helping to craft law, um, craft the U.S. Constitution, for instance. Um, there are a couple of law professors who never served as judges. Um, there are a large number of judges, but you don't have to be a judge to be included in this volume. Right. And, and of course, you know, John Cotton is a um, is a minister uh, mm-hmm. at, at the time. So is, you know, Ro- Roger Williams did, um, you know, have have legal training, but he's um, also in the in the same kind of role. John Winthrop is a is a magistrate. Um, he did practice law prior to uh, to immigrating, um, but at the his most you know significant contributions are going to be when he's not practicing in any kind of way. So yeah, the, I think it's it's good to have this sort of expansionist view of what a jurist is, not just a lawyer, not just a judge, um, but those that are that are thinking either at a scholarly level or even practical level, but from a different angle than uh, what we would think today in a sort of limited range of practitioners. Um, so I think that's, that's very helpful. Do you, do you have a working definition apart from that for, for kind of what a jurist does, um, on an older reading, let's say 17th, 18th century, um, you know, what kind of how they were viewed as a, as a profession? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we, we, in the introduction have a definition of jurist, the exact language we use escapes me, but basically someone who um, had an important impact on American law, be it constitutional law or statutory law, or the interpretation of law. So judges, of course, aren't making laws, but they're interpreting them. So someone like Nino Scalia, for instance, um, had a, a critically important impact on our understanding of American law. Got you. That's, I think that's helpful. So if you had a, um, I mean, you have your own chapter in this chapter five on Roger Sherman and Oliver Ellsworth to you know, men you've studied and you, you've written a separate book on Sherman. Um, so we can get to that in a minute. But if you had a, if you had a favorite, ch- favorite chapter on a favorite figure that you did not write in, in the book, which one would that be? 
Boy, and, that's and a, why, I should say. So it's more yeah, that's a great question. Great question. Um, one of the fun things about this project was I learned a whole lot. So I know the American founding fairly well. I know all the founders who are profiled tolerably well. Uh, but it was real fun to learn about some of these 19th century figures, for instance, John Marshall Harland, um, Simon Greenleaf, uh, David Brewer. You know, I knew all those names, but I didn't really know much about them. So it's real fun to see uh, an extended treatment of them. And I learned a lot. I, I guess um, Robbie George has to be at the very top of my list. I, I, I was able to spend the last academic year at Princeton with him. Um, he's just done so many wonderful things, um, had such a big impact on the law, even though, of course, he's never been a judge in, or, or legislature. But as an academic, um, as an institution builder, um, he's done so many wonderful things. So it's great to be able to include him in the chapter. And he was a um, consensus choice. This wasn't just Daniel and me picking someone we like. Um, almost everyone who's suggesting late 20th, early 21st century jurist included him in the list. That's interesting. So, yeah, it's funny you say that. I mean, I'm a, I'm a pretty big, I've written a little bit on, on John Marshall Harlan's uh, own jurisprudence in, in a narrow sense in a particular regard. But I mean, he, in my opinion, really was one of the last you know, thoroughly, I think in his jurisprudence, you can see a classical Christian bent that has continuity with with many that came before him. And also, um, you know, you mentioned earlier that, that as some of these may be uh, like Joseph Story may be known as Christians, but probably not the best orthodoxy. But, you know, John Marshall Harlan is teaching at a, a Presbyterian church on Sundays while he's on the bench. So a, a thoroughgoing, you know, uh, writing theological journal articles while he's while he's uh, serving. So you know, a true, true kind of Orthodox Calvinist Presbyterian, um, and also has a, a strong, I think there's a lot of classical kind of conceptions and categories that he continues to use longer than others did. And, and maybe no one after him really did that's been on the bench. Um, David Brewer is another, another great one, you know, to, um, of course his, his book, uh, people would be interested in, you know, the United States, a Christian nation from his Swarthmore lectures. Um, so just interesting people. I don't, you don't hear talked about that that much. I was glad to see them included, but um, since your, your expertise, and I'm, I'm happy to stick here as well, um, is, is in the founding era. Um, maybe we could briefly introduce to people who are uninitiated um, a few of the figures that um, both that you know, wrote about yourself, but then that I know that, uh, you're familiar with such as James Wilson and John Jay, and then we can go over to Sherman and Ellsworth after that. Yeah, so I'd be happy to. So I, I usually use a pretty broad definition of the of the founding that includes America's constitutional struggle with Great Britain that you can date to, let's say, 1764 um, through America's break with Great Britain and the War for American Independence to the creation of our constitutional order and the working out uh, of that constitutional order in the early republic. So basically 1764 to 1800 or so. And of the uh, within this era, we include a number of jurists. I'll, I'll just read over the list real quickly, then we can talk about whichever ones you you, you would like. Um, John Dickinson of New Jersey and in, in Pennsylvania, uh, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, Oliver Ellsworth of Connecticut. That's my chapter. John Jay, the nation's first chief justice. Um, James Wilson um, of Pennsylvania, about whom I wrote my first book. And yeah, that's it for the American founders. And and I would say. Um unless I'm misremembering the list already, all of the, uh, so Sherman Ellsworth, um, Wilson and Jay all would be, I, I think in my opinion, considered very Orthodox Christians. Is, 
Is that agreeable? To, yeah, no, I think uh, so. On your assessment, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah they, they really are uh, in the true sense. Even uh, they're even more narrowly conformed to your definition than maybe some of the others would be of what a Christian jurist would be. I mean, these are, uh, I guess, you know, basically Calvinist to a man. I don't, I don't know where exactly Wilson would fall on that, but um, you know, these are yeah, definitely raised in the um, Presbyterian tradition. Uh, eventually, by the end of his life, he's worshiping at Christ Church, Philadelphia, which is of course an Anglican church. His son went on to become an Anglican bishop. So I think it's fair to say that he um, slid out of the Reformed tradition, for want of a better word. And even in, <laughs> when he was a Presbyterian, he I don't think he really had a, a Calvinist view of human nature. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, definitely I, I can think of no reason to doubt that he's an Orthodox Christian, and, and mm -hmm. John Dickinson, for that matter, who was influenced in interesting ways by his, his Quaker tradition, even though he never formally joined a Quaker meeting. And so Jane, Jane Calvert, the author of that, insists that it's inaccurate to call him a Quaker, um, but I, I think clearly influenced by that tradition. Mm -hmm. Well, let's let's talk real real quick before we move to uh, Sherman Ellsworth about, I, I mean, I've heard you mention this in other talks you've done about the, um, you know, the significance of Wilson's law lectures, right, that he gives early. Um, tell us a little bit, you know, tell the listeners a little bit about the occasion for those and then why you think that they should, um, they were significant for the time and should still be read. Yeah, sure. So um, Wilson gave a series of law lectures at the College of Philadelphia, today the University of Pennsylvania, Begin, began, I think, in 1789, wrapped it up in 1791. He wanted to become the American Blackstone. And so he wanted to sort of provide a, a whole account of American law, including this jurisprudential foundations. And so you read through the lectures and they address very basic philosophical questions about what is reality? How do we know reality? What is the nature of law? And, um, and so most of them are really quite philosophical and he doesn't really get into what he called himself the retail business of law, the sort of practical stuff that attorneys do. I think his view was that you would, and of course, most people in this era would apprentice as attorneys. So you, even if you attended this law, the, the series of law lectures, you'd still apprentice as an attorney. And that's when you learn the practical elements of law. And so anyone, I, I've argued elsewhere that this is really about the closest any American founder comes to doing political philosophy, by which I mean the sort of um, highest level philosophical reflection on politics. Most of America's founders were practitioners, right? Someone like a James Madison, a um, Alexander Hamilton, they're out there doing things and they write things that I think are, it, it's fair to call political theory. Um, you know, theoretical reflections on politics or law, but they really don't hang together in any sort of philosophically coherent manner. So James Wilson, the, these law lectures specifically, probably the closest thing we have to political philosophy coming out of the American founding. Yeah, no, that's, um, and they, and they are, I mean, I think, um, you know, they're, they're easy and beautiful reading, you know, his, his prose have of course been, been polished, but his, um, is really well done. And he, um, you know, I, I would say for the most part, his organization of the lectures, especially his starting point, um, is very classical. And there's, there's certainly, um, you know, we, what we would now categorize as, as Thomistic categories that are still enduring um, in his, in his uh, approach to things. So I consider it to be, again, very, have a lot of continuity with, um, you know, the, the century prior and the way people would have approached 
in the same Protestant tradition would have approached a lot of the same questions and he's doing it a new, you know, in a new context. You know, I think that's exactly right. And this is actually an important lesson perhaps for your listeners. So when I came to Wilson, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on him. You look at the mid to late 20th century scholarship on him and all of it dismisses his discussion of the natural law. They think he's not serious about it. Um, whereas I, when I read through this, you know, right away, I pick up on the Thomistic category. So literally early in the lectures, he talks about, he says things like there are four categories of law, the eternal law, the celestial law, natural physical laws, and natural moral laws. Yeah, it, it categories he adopts from Hooker, who of course is borrowing from St. Thomas, Thomas Aquinas. And he says things like um, human laws that are not uh, congruent with, with the natural moral law are no laws at all. An unjust law is no law at all. And then he spins this out remarkably. And so I think my contribution to my dissertation and first book is to take his um, natural law discussion seriously. You have some Catholic scholars early in the 20th century and mid 20th century who did the same thing, uh, but their works were largely unavailable. So it, I think it's real important to come at these thinkers with the possibility that they're far more Christian than the scholarship portrays. Right. Uh, and, and in fact, it's the, it's the exact elements of Wilson's um, political thought that you're highlighting that, uh, you know, a, a more informed student of him, a more informed scholar coming to him, but, you know, instead of the people you were mentioning would immediately know that that's what marks him out as Christian. In fact, that it's uh, those are the exact things you'd be looking for in a, in a Christian sort of political thought. Um, and it's, you know, it's great in Wilson because he, there's even certain ways that the founders um, have been caricatured recently, I think, um, by people, you know, like Patrick Deneen, otherwise, uh, you know, Why Liberalism Failed is a great book um, in many ways, but he does, I think, caricature their view of um, the formation of society, the state of nature theory, these sorts of things and kind of lumps everybody into is it into one kind of mode, which is this sort of barest, almost Rousseauian mode of doing this. And, and Wilson is much more agreeable to someone like Blackstone um, or Nathaniel Chipman after him, where they recognize the, that humans have sociability innately, that they have the sense of divinity innately that's created in them and they have a desire for society. And so there is no sort of isolated existence that, that, you know, could have happened. And so it changes the way you approach political society. And it really doesn't conform to uh, the, the way Deneen kind of paints the, the thought of the founders and Wilson kind of, you know, challenges that. So, yeah, I, I agree. Absolutely. I, I, I like Patrick Deneen quite a bit. I think he's definitely onto something that obviously our society is, is really screwed up and maybe something that has something to do with liberalism, but he absolutely misconstrues the American founding. He does so. I, I used to know these exact numbers and, and so I won't pretend to quote them, but if you look at his chapter on the founding, pretty much all he discusses is Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, and Ben Franklin. And as I've argued elsewhere, these are very unrepresentative founders, right? They're all founders who are, who are who are Anglican or worshiping in Anglican churches at the end of their lives. They're founders, one, not even from America, two, who spent significant time in Europe. And I think they just don't represent the founding generation well at all. And I'm not even saying that Deneen gets them right. I'm not sure he gets even them right. But if you turn your eyes from some of these really kind of sparkly founders like a Franklin, a Hamilton, and a Jefferson, and look at the broader constellation 
of the political class of Americans. I'm not talking about yeomen in the fields. I'm talking about the sort of people who are populating the state legislatures, uh, the, the broader group of folks at the Constitutional Convention, the folks at the ratification conventions. And what you see is a heck of a lot of Protestants. 98% of Americans of European descent are Protestant. 50 to 75%, I think, are recently called Calvinist. And so when you look at someone like a Sherman or Ellsworth, I, I think they are far better um, representation of this this majority of the American population than someone like a Jefferson or Franklin who are who are just profoundly unrepresentative of the founding generation. Right, right. Um, well, before we leave leave Wilson, and uh, we can we can I think we'd both commend the the lectures to everyone, and and as far as I know, they're still available online for free. I think you can you can find that's them. right through Liberty Fund. Right. Um, so everyone should, should read those. They're a great introduction, not just for the historical, uh, historically interested for the questions we were just talking about, but really just for your own uh, edification and thought. I mean, I do think that they are substantively um, good and represent the, the Christian tradition fairly well in, in the sense that if you read Wilson's lectures, you will um, be familiar with other even older, you know, sort of Christian jurists you might encounter because there will be continuity there. But before we leave Wilson, maybe um, give the listeners the, the brief sort of rest of his uh, bio, or I guess we kind of skipped over his early life too, but brief bio, just introduce him and sort of situate him in the founding since we're saying he's, you know, he, he matters. And then we'll move on to our other figures. Yeah, I think he matters a great deal. So he was born in Scotland, educated at the University of St. Andrews, came over to America and initially was a, a teacher. He taught Latin and Greek in Philadelphia, but he was a very ambitious man. He decided that being a school teacher was not for him. So he read law under John Dickinson and pretty rapidly became one of the most sought after attorneys in America. Um, he entered Pennsylvania politics and of particular note, he served in the Continental Congress where he signed the Declaration of Independence. He was hesitant. He was not a leading radical. He wanted reconciliation with Great Britain. And ultimately, um, though, he decided that, that he had to cast his lot for independence. Um, later at the Constitutional Convention, he is literally one of the most important members of that convention. He advocates for a lot of things I don't like. I, I, I think I suggested earlier he is, I, I think, too optimistic of a view of human nature. So he wanted a very powerful national government and a very powerful presidency. He advocated for probably the strongest independent single um, understanding of the presidency of any founder. He thought the um, national government should have ultimate basically plenary power. Um, he wanted the direct popular election of members of the House, members of the Senate, and the president. He's the only one advocating for that sort of thing. And so he lost a lot of these battles, but I think he did um, have a major impact on the U.S. Constitution, making it as strong as it is, making the national government as strong as it is, and making the presidency as powerful as it is. Um, he then went on, he's, he wanted to become Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, but Washington made him an Associate Justice and he served on the court until his death in 17, 1798. Simultaneously, while serving on the court, he get, gave these lectures at the College of Philadelphia, which later became um, the, the lectures that you have before you. I, I, I should say real quickly, maybe there's kind of a funny story. So I'm the co-editor of the Liberty Fund um, collected works of, of James Wilson. The initial editor, um, well, it's 
Yeah, let me back up a little bit. I know the fellow who was promoting this project, who collected the documents, and then he uh, was told, told Liberty Fund, I know exactly who should edit these, Mark David Hall. Liberty Fund Press promptly turned around and asked Kermit Hall, no relation at all, but the great legal scholar to edit them. And so Kermit started editing them, was about a third of the way through the project, and he tragically died. And so at that point, the Liberty Fund Press brought me in to be the co-editor, and I brought the project to completion. These are wonderful volumes. You can actually buy them, the paperback volume, for about fourteen fifty on Amazon Prime. So they are available for free online, uh, but I would commend um, to your listeners, just go ahead and buy them. If you have Amazon Prime, that's, what, about $29, including shipping. Well, and we're, uh, well, I, I actually can't speak for you, but I'm not getting paid anything for this. Um, but I think Liberty Fund is still, uh, at this moment, still having, you know, one of the, they do sales frequently as well. Great sales. So they're, no, I think that's right. And I get no royalties from these volumes. So I mean, I'm, I'm <laughs> okay, honestly them to your, to your listeners. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not good that you get no royalties, but now I haven't misrepresented <laughs> what we're doing, but it's a, yeah. it's a great resource and many of the texts, um, that, that we'll talk about bo- both with um, some of some today and then with others of our guests. I mean, a lot of them are, have been made available again uh, through Liberty Fund and they're um, almost always very quality volumes with great introductions. And it's not just American founding. I mean, that's how, you know, the, the works of uh, a lot of the works of Suarez are back out because of them, so on and so forth. So um, it's a great, great resource and everyone should go by Wilson's lectures. Um, there in his collected works, um, edited by Dr. Hall. So, um, we, we also mentioned John Jay briefly, who was chief justice at the same, at the time that Wilson was on the court. Tell us, uh, you know, just brief bio of Jay and his significance. Um, and then we'll, we'll finally get to, to your main guys. Sure. So John Jay, there's a great chapter in him by, um, let me make sure I get, get that right. I wanted to say Jonathan Hartog, he's my go-to guy, but it's actually by, um, it's not by him. Where's um, uh, Wendell Bird? The, yeah, who is just a fine, fine attorney uh, for many, many years, a practicing attorney. Then he went back and got a PhD from either Oxford or Cambridge, and he's come out with a number of excellent books on the early court. And so we turned to him to write the chapter on John Jay. Um, Jay is of Huguenot, that is French Protestant um, ancestry. He himself became an Anglican, but a, um, a solid Orthodox Christian, a massive impact on. Um, New York law, a, um, a, the first chief justice, although he left the, the Supreme Court fairly rapidly to become governor of New York. One of the fun things about Jay, and I'll mention this, um, there's been a lot of talk recently about the founders in slavery, as if they're a bunch of uh, complete and utter hypocrites. When, when you look a little bit more carefully, though, what you see is a number of founders like John Jay, whom I believe owned a slave or two, but eventually freed them voluntarily. And as governor ended up signing the law in New York that put slavery on the road to extinction. John Dickinson at one point was the largest slave owner in Delaware. Um, he was convicted that slavery is evil. So he freed all of his slaves again, voluntarily. No one made him do it. And then other founders like uh, Roger Sherman, Oliver Ellsworth never owned an enslaved person. And, uh, and Sherman, in fact, penned the statute for Connecticut that put slavery on the road to extinction there. And so, again, I, I, I just commend your listeners to, to don't be taken in by projects like the 1619 Project that paints the founding in, in, in just as a, a horrific racist event. Um, there were racist founders, there were slave-owning founders who abused their um, slaves, and we can be properly critical of those. But when we look at the broader founder 
broader constellation of founders, you see that there were, in fact, many founders who never owned slaves, many who owned slaves and freed them. And collectively, the founding generation took numerous steps to end that evil, horrible practice. Hmm. Uh, very good. So that's that's Wilson and Jay briefly for everybody to hopefully, uh, you know, pique everybody's interest. They can go go read um, especially Wilson's work, as we've already recommended. But let's get to Oliver Ellsworth and Roger Sherman. Now, um, probably fewer people, uh, maybe even than they are with Wilson, are going to be familiar with with Ellsworth and Sherman because they are, um, you know, they're certainly within this broad constellation of founders you're talking about, but they're almost never um, part of the group that's highlighted by sort of mainstream public uh, or, you know, popular level histories. They're sort of sidelined. Um, both of them, we can begin with Ellsworth. Um, I remember a great essay from several years ago from um, William Casto on his Calvinism uh, that, that was fantastic. Um, I remember reading that several years ago. Um, so he's a you know, thoroughgoing Calvinist, um, significant jurist, even you know, secular scholars have to recognize this, that he does have um, you know, influence and importance, but he's not going to be well known to people. So maybe give us an introduction to him and his, his contributions as you see it and work it into your chapter in this book. Yeah, so both Sherman and Ellsworth were um, the, among the leading lights of uh, of Connecticut politics, although Ellsworth was younger. Um, Ellsworth actually kind of looked to Sherman as a mentor of, of sorts. And so both of them rose through the ranks of Connecticut politics. Back in this era, it really is just mind boggling how there was no real understanding of the separation of powers. You had a number of founders, including Sherman and Ellsworth, who held state offices, even as they were then serving in the Continental or Confederation Congress. Someone like Sherman, anyway, was on the Connecticut Superior Court, even as he was in the Connecticut Upper House, the equivalent of the Connecticut Senate, and even as he was serving in, in the National Congress. And so you had a lot of overlapping roles and responsibilities here. Um, Sherman and Ellsworth are probably best known, if they're known at all, as the authors of the Connecticut Compromise. You had, of course, a raging debate in the Constitutional Convention. Um, would the national government be based on, on proportional representation, or would it be based on equal representation? And it was a, a, a pretty much neither side... Um, if if either one of those ways got it, if it was proportional representation, then you would have had the large states ratifying the Constitution, but none of the small states and vice versa. And so what Sherman and Wilson suggested is that we have a House based on proportional representation. So Virginia gets however many members of the House of Representatives as it has percentage of the American population. On the other hand, we'll have equal representation within the states, two senators per state, regardless of size. And so I think almost everyone recognizes that this compromise was necessary if a document was to come out of Philadelphia that would be ratifiable. And I would highlight what you just said. There is just no question that these folks are thoroughgoing Calvinist. Um, Roger Sherman, whom I know better, um, was a lifelong commitment to um, his congregational church. His um, church in New Haven was pastored by John Jonathan Edwards Jr. Um, Sherman owned all of the works of jo Jonathan Edwards Sr. As, as they were published by his son. He collected them. Um, Sherman wrote sermons. Sherman debated things such as when is it appropriate to basically fire a minister? And what he was arguing is there's a covenantal relationship between a, a church and a minister, and the minister should only be 
be basically fired or let go if he becomes theologically heterodox or if there's moral scandal. Um, similarly, he had a debate with John Witherspoon, then president of Princeton College in New Jersey at the time, about when it's appropriate for a Christian to get to have a divorce. And so I, I just highlight that to say that Sherman and Ellsworth, for that matter, were very thoughtful Orthodox Christians and really even Calvinist Christians firmly in the Reformed tradition. So they would have been, um, you know, part of the so-called standing order of, of Connecticut, of kind of the, uh, you know, the established Congregationalist um, there who, you know, most most people who are influential, both in uh, whether Massachusetts or, or Connecticut were, were part of that and therefore usually a thoroughgoing Calvinist, although you can have, uh, you know, someone like Samuel Adams, who is and John Adams, who's, who's not. But um, so both both of them are are raised sort of in that environment uh, in Connecticut. What, what else can you tell us about their early life that may or, you know, be sort of influential or important for them as they stepped into those roles um, in the, what we're calling the founding period? One of the really neat things I think about Sherman is unlike some of the <laughs> some of the elite founders we know, he never went to college. Um, he was original, originally a cobbler. Um, eventually, he got interested in um, in doing surveying. And so he learned the math necessary to do that. And then he kind of continued and learned the math necessary to put together an almanac, which he did for about 10 years, beginning right around 1760, I think. As he was doing surveying, that had him interacting with the law. And um, he eventually decided to become an attorney. And so he read law, as was common in the practice. So even though he never had a college degree, he became an attorney, a very successful attorney, uh, but then got into politics where he, as I suggested before, rose through the ranks from the lower house of the Connecticut General Court to the upper house, to the Superior Court of um of Connecticut to the Continental Confederation Congress and then to the U.S. Congress. Let, let me just mention real briefly, you're exactly right. People generally don't know of Sherman. If they know of him, it's just simply as author of the Connecticut Connecticut Compromise. If I can focus just on the national level for a minute, Sherman is the only founder to help draft and ratify the uh, the documents that needed ratification anyway, the uh, Declaration and Resolves of the of the Continental Congress the U.S. Declaration of Independence. He's on the Committee of Five that puts that together. Um, he's a very important participant in the, in the Constitutional Convention. There was a political scientist a few years ago who looked at the votes in the Constitutional Convention, and what he found is that sometimes Sherman and Madison were on the same side. Oftentimes they weren't, and when they weren't, Sherman actually won more of those votes than did Madison. And so even though people offhandedly refer to Madison as the father of the Constitution, you can make an equally good case for Sherman. And in fact, what a couple of good historians have pointed out is that it was a dynamic between Sherman and Madison that made the Constitution possible. Um, Sherman then went on to help draft the, the U.S. Bill of Rights. If I can highlight for a minute one of the ways in which I think Sherman's Calvinism comes out, if you look at the Virginia plan proposed by James Madison, it really is kind of scary if you have a Calvinist view of human nature. What you would have is a national government with plenary power and um, that is no limitation on its power and one based solely on proportional representation. Later during the Constitution. Constitutional Convention, as Wilson and Hamilton were pushing a, a very, very strong executive that would have really quite a few um, unilateral powers. Sherman opposed these sorts of moves at every point. 
Um, when he came a couple of days late and saw the Virginia plan, he said, I'm going to paraphrase him, but he said, you've got to be kidding. We can't give the national government this much power. And he proposed what eventually became Article 1, Section 8. The idea here is we need to limit the power of the national government. He fought a strong presidency at every turn, and he lost some of those battles. But because of Wilson, because of Sherman, we have a far more constrained um, and limited na- national presidency than we would have had otherwise. And what what you can see is a Calvinist conception that humans are sinful and even Christians continue to struggle with the old man within. And so we need a national government of limited power, separation of of powers, of checks and balances. And um, and he won a number of those battles. And so I think the Constitution has been as successful as it has been because of the contribution of Sherman and Ellsworth and other Calvinist founders. Excellent. Um, something that may, uh, many of our listeners probably will know this, but you, you alluded to it when you were talking about, um, you know, Sherman being basically an autodidact, um, is that, that of course, legal education was, a looked very different. Um, education generally looked different, uh, in the 18th century. So can you, you alluded to it already, already, but maybe just cover kind of what, you know, if you're, a, if you're an aspiring jurist, a lawyer generally in, uh, the 18th century. What's what is it going to take for you to get either barred or to uh, you know to get in sort of the legislative halls? Yeah. So in effect, there were not law schools in the 18th century, and so if you wanted to practice law, oftentimes you would graduate from college and then apprentice under an attorney, and the attorney would probably have you read some of the great legal classics of Blackstone and Vettel, for instance. Uh, but you would learn, you know, the regular business of law just simply through practicing with that attorney. I, I think it is telling, um, it really, this mode of legal education was very, very prominent throughout the 19th century. We do begin to see the formation of law schools, Harvard, among others. It actually was not until 1948 that every justice on the U.S. Supreme Court had a law degree from a from a law school. Um, so I think it was Justice Jackson was the last one who served on the U.S. Supreme Court who had read law, who apprenticed law and did not go to law school. Yes, I, I think that's right. There may maybe there were a couple a couple others that did part. You know, then you had a trend of people doing partial law school and and then sitting for the bar before finishing and, and you know, that sort of deal as well. But it's right. it's a very recent invention to even have the, the law schools as they stand today, um, especially with the the uh, sort of formalized version of them um, in any case. So that that's um, Sherman force. Why do you think, um, you know, because of the significance you just sketched out of Sherman, that's, that's just um, on the record, it's demonstrable that he, um, if he's going toe to toe with Madison at the convention, if he's um, in many cases, because he's winning the vote, it would indicate he's more representative of the predominant opinion. But why Why do you think it is that Madison does get all the attention or others and someone like Sherman has been in many cases, you know, confined to the dustbin? A few years ago, I edited a book with Gary Gregg called America's Forgotten Founders. And what Greg and I did is we surveyed a, a, a large number, like 120 political scientists, historians and whatnot. And we asked, who are the founders that deserve to be known who aren't known? And so you think about the ones everyone knows, a Washington and Adams, a Jefferson, a Madison, a Hamilton and a Ben Franklin usually come to mind, right? Well, the first four I named became president. And I, th- I think that's important 
to note of Ben Franklin's just simply so flashy. And recently, of course, Hamilton comes to mind because of the musical, I think. And he was a pretty flashy individual. For this volume, Daniel Dreisbach has a wonderful essay addressing this very question. Why do we know some founders and not know others? Um, one, one factor is simply age. All the ones we know, with the exception of Ben Franklin, were relatively young men when the Constitution was ratified. And so this allowed them to go on to, to serve in prominent ways in the new republic, right, as president or in other offices. Um, someone like a Sherman died in 1793. So he was in the House of Representatives. He helped craft the Bill of Rights. Uh, but how many representatives jump into our mind when we think of great great leaders. Now, if he had been a young man, he might have lived a lot longer, had a greater impact um, in the House or the Senate, eventually became a senator, or perhaps even as, as chief executive. As well, I, I, I think um, there's simply a function of papers. If you look at the founders that we know well, uh, they're the, the collected works of a John Adams literally is stretching on to like 90 volumes. And this includes letters to him as well as letters from him um, and you know, things related to him. But there's just a lot more to work with. For someone like James Wilson, as I mentioned, I co-edited the collected works of James Wilson. There are two volumes, only two volumes. That really is almost anything anyone writing on, on Wilson would need to read. There's virtually nothing that's left out. The collected works of Roger Sherman, which I also edited for Liberty Fund, of just one volume. So there's a lot less to work with. And again, Wilson died in 1798. So Wilson was relatively young. If he had lived well into the 19th century, maybe he would have um, been acclaimed as a great jurist along the lines of John Marshall, but he died. He died early. As well, I think there's a natural bias of academics, um, 20th, 21st century academics. When they're looking back, they're just naturally drawn to someone like a, a Franklin or a Jefferson that seemed to have far more cosmopolitan ideas far um, far less theologically orthodox, and so they're more attractive. And then especially when you start talking about things like church-state relations, uh, I think scholars and jurists are just naturally drawn to a Jefferson and Madison if they desire to see the strict separation of church and state. Someone like an Oliver Ellsworth and Roger Sherman are far more comfortable with state establishments of religion. Uh, they certainly didn't, didn't desire anything approximating the separation of church and state. And so I think there's a modern bias that um, modern scholars are attracted to founders that they tend to agree with. And someone like a Sherman just seems positively old fashioned. And so there's an inclination to ignore him. Again, none of these guys are completely ignored. There's an excellent biography of Sherman. There are a couple of works that mention him in passing. Uh, but in the, scholar, in, the, in the popular imagination, they're almost not present. And so one of my missions in life really has been to call attention to these lesser known founders and to argue that if we want to understand the founding generation, we really do have to look at the broader constellation of founders. And once we do this, we see a very different picture than if we just focus in on someone like uh, Thomas Jefferson or uh, Ben Franklin. Excellent. That's that's super helpful. Um, kind of sketching out those that cause and effect uh, relationship between the uh, you know what's the household names and the uh, the, the forgotten. And I um, you know appreciate you you bringing some of these guys to our attention. Even even just editing you know the one or two volumes though you said of uh, you know two volumes on Wilson and one on. Um, if, from Sherman, I mean, is, is a lot of time invested. So it's, it's a, a lot of hard work. So we appreciate you making those available for us. Um, we, we would be remiss if we, if we left out Ellsworth though, without a brief, 
um, sketch kind of of, of his life, uh, w- where he stands. You already mentioned his relationship with Sherman, um, but just give us a, a brief sketch to introduce him to people as well. Yeah, so he's younger. He, um, of course, played an important role in the Constitution Convention, was appointed one of Connecticut's first senators. Um, he goes on to be appointed to Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, which he served in the mid-1790s. Uh, John Marshall is often credited with getting the court, U.S. Supreme Court, away from issuing seriatim opinions. That is, each justice issuing his own opinions. Actually, Ellsworth was a, a big proponent of having the court speak with a unified voice whenever possible. So it's a tradition that Marshall continued. Uh, because of ill health, he resigned from the U.S. Supreme Court, went back to Connecticut, where he served in, in um, politics and as a judge until his death, right around, I think, 1819. I'm not quite sure. I don't have all of that information memorized as well as I do with uh, Roger Sherman. But again, a um, indisputably pious Orthodox Calvinist whose faith, I think, impacted everything he did, uh, both as a political leader and as a, as a judge. Here's a fun statistic. You, you'll, you'll, you probably know this already, but in case your listeners don't, every single justice who served before John Marshall, with one exception, is clearly on record saying the U.S. Supreme Court could strike down an act of Congress if it violated the natural law. So not the Constitution, but the natural law. And of course, this would apply all the more so to state legislature that went against the natural law. And it's just to highlight that these folks really had a a classical Protestant or Christian understanding of the law. Law is something that must be based on God's natural law, a moral law. And if a law, if a human law contradicts natural law, it's void. It's just utterly compelling, striking, I think. American jurisprudence, of course, turns against this, at least in theory in the 19th century, although I think remnants of it hold on throughout the 19th into the 20th century. Yeah, that is that is fascinating. And um, and so it it shows, yes, how far we've we've drifted in many ways from the uh, the basic assumptions, um, you know, certainly in someone like a like a Wilson. I mean, he spells it out for us, but it shows you that they're operative in and the sort of common education that all of the, the jurists would have had at the time, and at least any that were worth their salt um, and, and rose to any kind of prominence. So, um, which is exactly the reason I think these uh, figures need to continue to be studied, especially by our, our listeners. And this, this book is a, is a great introduction to them. I mean, there's, there's a, you can get a kind of summation of their, um, their lives and, and a bit of their contribution and, and maybe their position relative to some of the other figures, at least in the case of Sherman and Ellsworth, you're showing how they're related. And then those other other founders that are that are there in, in chapters six and seven with Wilson and Jay, uh, Dickinson and four, all those are going to kind of, you know, have some overlap and even into uh, into Joseph Story, um, whose, you know, commentaries. Um, probably after, you know, if we were giving people a reading list after you get done with Wilson, you should probably go read um, Story to see, to see again some more continuity there, even though it's from a sort of, it's a different sort of format and perspective um, in that way, but lots of continuity with uh, with Wilson and representative of, of, you know, his own generation. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And I'll mention as well, I, I think the um, Puritan jurors that we profile here, are, are even all the more influenced by their, their Calvinist roots and by the doctrine of sola scriptura. So they're attempting to craft laws um, drawing immediately and directly from the Bible. So we have a couple of good chapters on these folks. In my recent book, my last book, Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land, the entire first chapter is on the Puritans. And I argue that they're, in fact, 
Um, they created some of the most Republican institutions the world has ever known, some of the most humane laws the world has ever known. And so they're just often given a, a bum rap because of a few events that went on, such as the Salem witchcraft trials. But I argue and I show, I think definitively, that these are not representative of Puritan New England. And in fact, um, the rest of the world was doing this sort of thing all the more so, including over in Europe. So you have the last execution for witchcraft in Switzerland in like 17. 83 or something like that, <laughs> whereas uh, the Salem Witch trials really were a fluke that went on under a non-Puritan governor. So that's just a brief advertisement for Proclaim Liberty throughout all the land. Um, you can easily order that on Amazon, and I do get royalties from that book, so sales are much appreciated. <laughs> Yes, let's. Um, and of, and of course, I already mentioned. Um, you know, did, did America have a Christian founding? Um, and then, do you, do you have any upcoming works that our listeners would be mentioned in that you're any upcoming projects that they should look out for? We should get those on the record as well. Yeah. So my next book is on American Christian nationalism, and it'll be out in April from Post Hill Press. The um, title is Who's Afraid of Christian Nationalism? And so a lot of what I do in the book is I take on the critics, so Whitehead and Perry and Paul Miller and folks, and I argue that they just paint a picture of this horrible, racist, sexist, homophobic, militaristic beast um, that's out there that wants to take over America for Christ that just really has no connection to reality. I think they paint a threat that simply does not exist. Um, I do take on the handful of Christians that actually advocate for something like Christian nationalism, what they call Christian nationalism. Um, and I, I, I give good biblical and theological reasons why I think they're wrong. And then I end up painting a picture of what I think is accurately called Christian nationalism. And I'm critical of that as well. So pretty much everyone will be mad at me after reading that book. <laughs> uh, but hopefully that will, um, that, that will increase sales. <laughs> that's, that's right. I mean, if, if the, if the, uh, if you can learn anything from some of the Christian nationalists yourself, it's it's not the worst thing for sales to have people mad at you. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, we will have. Uh, you said that's coming out in April of twenty four from from Postal right. Press, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so we everyone should look out for that as well. And um, and you are you are on Twitter. I um, you know somewhat active on Twitter. Do you give everybody your handle for that? And then um, your you know maybe your personal website or something where they can follow your. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what my Twitter handle is, which is why um, <laughs> I'm only somewhat active. The, the really useful site my wife built it for me is markdavidhall.org. And there you can find a list of um, all, all the books that I've ever published and a number of articles and number of the endorsements and that sort of thing. And so that's uh, the one-stop shopping place for Mark David Hall. It's academic stuff. Okay. Um, and now give us a, um, this, this is kind of something we've we've started doing on, on this podcast is, you know, give us one old work and one contemporary work uh, that, that people should read, uh, not from yourself, <laughs> that, uh, that yeah, people should okay. read. Um, and, and, you know, if it's, if it kind of connects to some of this, the themes we were talking about today, all the better. Wow. Well, yeah, I read a lot of old stuff. So the first part of that is um, easier. It, it goes with the theme of what we're talking about, but especially people who listen to this podcast, I would say the um, the, the collected works of, of James Wilson really should be read, and especially his lectures on law, although the collected works include other um, other things. Boy, in terms of recent books, so this is not theological or even that theoretical, but I recently read and even taught Matthew Continetti's The Right, A Hundred-Year History mm -hmm for um, the soul of American conservatism or something like that. That is just a wonderful, sweeping 
history of what it means to be a conservative, the various manifestations that conservatism has taken throughout American history over the last hundred years. And um, I, I thought very helpful. And it has a decent treatment of the rise of the religious right in the 1970s, which is so often misconstrued. So yeah, I, w- I would recommend that book to your mm-hmm. readers. Yes, I've heard good things, but I haven't haven't read it myself. And you said you were you were able to teach on it as well. Yeah, I actually taught it in one of my Robertson School of Government classes. So I had a um, basically an American political traditions class. I went from the Puritans to the present day, and so I used him for the present day part. And by present day, I mean the last hundred years. So right. um, not like two thousand twenty three, but um, recent history. Whereas I, I spent a lot more time on the on the early colonies and the founding era, honestly, which is, yeah, I think just critical for understanding America. And that's maybe one thing as well I would commend to your listeners. Um, I I think if we want to save our constitutional experiment and self-government, we really have to understand the American founding and the principles that animated the founders, the reasons why they chose to construct the sort of um, uh, national government that we have. And important, I think we'll be remember, we'll rem- remind ourselves of important things, such as that we're supposed to be living under a national government of limited enumerated powers. The national government does many things. It has no business doing to the extent to which any government is doing um, many of the things it does, education, welfare, that sort of thing. It should be done by state governments. But even there, I think many founders would say, no, these things are best done by non-governmental agencies, by churches and voluntary associations and families. And I I think we can remind ourselves of that if we spend time in the American founding, even with someone like a James Wilson, who, as I've already said, wanted a stronger national government than almost anyone. Uh, But then certainly when we turn to a Sherman and Ellsworth and most of the founders, we see this commitment to a limited national government. So I would commend um, all of your listeners to spend significant time reading founding era literature, the debates of the federal convention, the federalist papers, anti-federalist papers, and so forth. Yes, and indeed. The uh, I was, um, you know, part of the reason we d- we're doing what we're doing at the Hale Institute is, uh, you know, the summer before I went to, to law school, I just assumed that, um, you know, I needed to kind of put a reading list together for myself so I wouldn't be, an, you know, an idiot, that surely I, I needed to read things that everybody would have read. And I got to a law school and found out I'd, I couldn't find anyone else that had read the Federalist Papers, but I had made sure to, you know, read them before <laughs> beforehand because I thought for sure I'd be embarrassed in my com law class if I hadn't, but uh, no one had, so. <laughs> um, yeah, they, and, and how many com law classes are taught where you don't even read the Constitution, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think law yeah. school is just profoundly flawed and um, I I think, yeah, I would encourage all of your listeners to participate in your program if they're eligible for it. And, you know, I think there are a handful of law schools out there, maybe Notre Dame, I think Regent. Regent has a wonderful little foundations of law class every first year student takes. But I think otherwise, you're just kind of thrown right in there, um, you know, to study property or whatever else. And it's taught kind of in the abstract, you know, here's here's a case. What do you students think about it, right? And trying to pull out principles of the law through this case method, which is relatively recent, as you know, um, it, it really adopted at Harvard in the late 19th century, and then it spread like wildfire, but not the best way to teach law, I say, as someone who doesn't have a law degree, but who knows a lot of people who do. Yes, I think um, I, I always forget the name of the law school that Scott Pryor is at, um, but he also teaches a foundations course. They've allowed him to do that, but those pl- places like that are few and far in between, and um, you know, a lot of it is only degrading more. I think I've, I've heard about, um, 
you know, the essay competitions to get on law journals, you know, to be kind of, they've resorted to, to allowing you to do like popular level takes, you know, when I don't know whatever Taylor Swift's latest tour is and things like this. I mean, it's just degrading more and more. <laughs> so um, it's why we try to, I mean, people are going to have to supplement their education. And this, this book, I, I couldn't re recommend it enough um, is, is a good way to, to start doing that great Christian jurist in American history, um, edited by Dr. Hall and, and Dr. Dreisbach, and it's it'll at least act as introductions to certain figures. Then you can then you go follow all their footnotes, right, and, and read the uh, the primary sources they're referring to, and you'll be well on your way. Uh, Dr. Hall, thanks so much for for your time and coming on, on to uh, talk about this book, introduce people to um, you know Wilson, Ellsworth, and Sherman among others. Um, it's, a, it's a lot of fun, and I think will be a great help to people. Well, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. It's been a real pleasure.